Hollywood has made quite an industry out of end of the world movies. There have been literally dozens of them around, uh, going back right into the 1950s when there were movies like On the Beach, uh, if you've seen that classic movie set here in Australia, people waiting for the nuclear fallout to come and for them to die. So there's lots and lots of those end of the world movies. Uh, some have suggested that it's going to happen when asteroids collide with our Earth. Others have suggested that it'll be some nasty plague that will actually take us all out. Uh, some have suggested chaotic weather patterns. Come to think of it. Uh, others have suggested crazy things like robots or dragons being what will cause the end of the wo- end of the world. Uh, but for most people, the most popular theme seems to be that of nuclear explosions that are going to wipe everybody out. Uh, what amazes me with the vast majority of these movies is that they have very strong biblical overtones to them. Uh, they seem to derive a lot of their ideas from biblical concepts. I mean, movies like Armageddon, uh, that comes from the Hebrew, it's, it's here in the book of Revelation as well. So what is going to happen when the world comes to an end? How will the world wind up? If you wanted to choose the passage in the Bible that actually deals with that question, then it's The chapters that we're actually looking at today, 17, 18, 19 and 20 in the book of Revelation. But let me begin with the same word of caution that I've been offering the whole way through the book of Revelation. Don't home in on small details, step back so that you can see the big picture that's being presented to us. What's the overall idea that we see in these visions that we're looking at today? If we get caught up with small details, we'll end up going off on strange and unusual tangents, and I'll tell you about some of those a little bit later this morning. But chapter 17 opens with Babylon being introduced to us, the great city of Babylon, and Babylon is about to be punished. Now, Babylon, for the original readers of this book, well, that would have created a whole bunch of ideas in their mind. They knew what Babylon was. Babylon was that city from their history where they'd been taken as captives. Back in 587, Judah, the last remaining tribe in Israel, was overtaken and they were taken off by Nebuchadnezzar to captivity in Babylon. Babylon is seen as the enemy of God, the kingdom that's opposed to God and his purposes in this world. It was the powerful kingdom in the world at that time. So when John's readers hear the word Babylon, what are they thinking? Well, they may be thinking that John's talking about Rome, because Rome was the great empire at that time, and Rome was becoming the enemy of God's people at that time. But I don't think John is trying to present for us a literal city. And that's going to become a bit obvious later on. But Babylon is described in, shall we say, less than flattering terms. Babylon is called the great prostitute, in fact, the mother of all prostitutes. And the inhabitants of the earth are seduced by Babylon. She's dressed in the most gaudy manner. She's a streetwalker and she's dressed in horrible purple and scarlet and wears all of this expensive jewellery. But she's also clearly the enemy of God's people. Have a look at what it says in verse number 6. I saw the woman, this is Babylon, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. There she stands, glass of wine in her hand, 
a glass containing the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Now it comes as no surprise that Babylon is teamed up with the beast, presumably the beast that we met earlier, the counterfeit Jesus that we saw earlier on in Revelation. And I think we're supposed to imagine that this vision of Babylon is the world opposed to God. It's the enemy of God's people. Last week I said that Revelation is a very black and white book. It says you either belong to God or you belong to Satan. You worship God or you worship the beast. You have God's mark on your forehead or you have Satan's mark on your forehead. Well, here's another black and white picture that's being presented. Here's a choice to be made. Two cities are going to be on view in these closing chapters of Revelation and you have to decide which one you want to be a part of. Revelation 17 is one of those passages where it's very tempting to dive in and start making very direct applications. It it talks about kings in here. Uh, Seven kings. Uh, You'll find it there in chapter 17, verse 10. Uh, And people have often tried to identify who these kings are. Uh, Some of them have wanted to say, well, it's seven emperors in Rome. Um, that, that, that kind of fits the bill. You can squeeze those seven emperors in and the eighth one that it talks about in Revelation, well, that's Domitian. That's the one who's, who's, who's cruelly persecuting God's people at that time. Other people have tried to say that it's popes of the Catholic Church, that you can fit seven popes into that scenario. And the last one is Francis, who's now on the throne, so to speak, in, uh, in Rome. Um, some other people... Oh, can't quite see it in that graphic, but uh, some other people have suggested that it's seven kingdoms that are being talked about, not necessarily individual kings. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and then we get on to the Roman Empire. But I don't think you need to try and squeeze seven things in here. Seven's just that number of completeness that we have. It's all the way through the book of Revelation. And it doesn't really matter in the end, because irrespective of who these kings are, The overall message of this passage is really very simple. Babylon's destined for destruction. Don't align yourself with Babylon. There will be those who do. There will be kings and rulers and inhabitants of the earth who will allow themselves to be seduced by Babylon. But she's destined for destruction. If you want to be a part of Babylon, the passage says, then your future is very bleak. I think one of the clues in this passage about understanding who Babylon is, is what Babylon represents. We said last week that that the beast was the counterfeit Jesus. It kind of sounded like Jesus. Fatal wound, but back alive again. And and everybody singing praises, being given a throne and authority and power. Well, in Revelation, we're going to read about another city a little bit later on. In fact, can you turn there now, chapter 20 of Revelation, and find verses 1 and 2. Because here's the other city. If Babylon is the nasty one, well, here's the other city, the city of God's people. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed. For her husband. Here's another city, another woman. And the contrast, well, really couldn't be any more stark, could it? 
You've got the bride who's beautifully dressed for her husband, waiting for the bridegroom. Or the prostitute who's teamed up with the beast and is trying to seduce the rest of the world. You've got this woman dressed in fine linen. Or you've got the woman who's got all the gaudy clothes and jewellery on. You've got the new Jerusalem, destined to stand forever. Or Babylon, destined for destruction. I think in a sense we're supposed to see that Babylon is the counterfeit people of God. It's the other place that people congregate if they're not part of Jerusalem, if they're not part of God's people. And there's a choice to be made. You can be part of God's city, this new Jerusalem, or you can be a part of Babylon, destined for destruction. Chapter 18 makes it even clearer who Babylon is when we actually see who mourns her destruction. I'm not sure if you read through this passage or listened carefully when it was being read to us, but there's this funny bunch of people who mourn the destruction of Babylon. Uh, Verse number 9 of chapter 18 The kings of the earth, they mourn Babylon's demise because their whole existence as kings really relied on Babylon being there. And and then in verse 11, a very unusual group of people are mourning the destruction of Babylon. It's the merchants, the shopkeepers who are mourning Babylon's destruction. Have a look, verse number number 11. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her Because no one buys their cargoes anymore. They mourn because their business has dried up. There's no one to buy their stuff anymore. Now, remember, this is just an image that's being presented. This is not reality that's being presented. It's this picture to help, help us understand who Babylon is. The material excesses of Babylon. Well, no one's going to buy the stuff anymore when Babylon is destroyed. And then down in verse 17, it's the next people along the production line. It's the sea captains. They're mourning because they're now out of a job. That No one's going to be sending stuff in. They won't be doing any more importing of things to be sold in Babylon because Babylon is gone. Babylon's the counterfeit city. Babylon is all those who trust in something other than the one true God. Babylon is the place that people look to for hope and security and protection. It could be Rome, but it could be Athens, it could be Corinth, it could be New York, it could be Moscow, it could be Paris, it could be Sydney. Babylon is everything that sets itself up as an alternative to God, that says, trust me, I can look after you. Nothing will touch you. You'll be secure here. And God is sweeping it all away. The fate of Babylon is set in concrete. It's sobering to see all of those people who mourn the fall of Babylon. It's those who've looked to Babylon for their financial security, for their security in general. One of my most vivid memories of 9-11, I was up watching the news the night that that happened, and one of my most vivid memories is that almost immediately, when the government understood what it was that was going on, they closed the stock exchange. And I remember thinking, 
it almost seems a bit heartless, doesn't it? I mean, here are all these people dying in this building and the first thing that we're worried about is how will this affect me financially? So the stock exchange was closed. It actually remained closed for four days. You can count on one hand the number of times that the stock exchange in the United States has closed completely. And this time it was closed for four days. Kind of has the ring of the merchant's mourning, doesn't it? Not worried about lives that are lost, just worried about dollars in my bank account. Similar thing happened with the Bali bombing here in Australia. Before the clean-up had finished, when the funerals were still very clear memories in the minds of all of those families, the Indonesian president got on television and made an appeal to Australians to keep making Bali a holiday destination. Why? Well, she was worried about what the economic impact would be on Bali and on Indonesia. They stand and mourn as Babylon is destroyed because that's where their security was and now it's gone. And that's the terrifying thing about the idea of judgment, isn't it? That the day that Jesus comes again, there'll be a whole bunch of people who are trusting something that won't be there anymore. The thing that they had placed their hope in will be gone. But while there is mourning on earth, we actually read about rejoicing in heaven in chapter 19. The fall of Babylon sees the saints singing hallelujah in heaven. They're rejoicing because God's judgment has come. They're rejoicing because God has dealt with those who are opposed to him. I don't know, maybe this is just an Australian thing, but by and large, we don't like people who gloat over victories. Most Australians, with the possible exception of people like Leighton Hewitt, don't like gloating. We don't like rubbing someone's nose in it when we've had the victory. We like to try and be a little bit more humble about it. But before you think that all of this rejoicing here in Revelation 19 is a little bit un-Australian, we need to be clear about what's happening here. Justice is coming to the world. God is righting all of the wrongs in our world. He's dealing with oppression. He's dealing with those people who are opposed to him. God's final justice is being shown to the earth. Remember back in chapter 6 where we saw that image of the souls hiding underneath the altar and they were crying out? Do you remember what they were crying out? How long, O Lord? Well, the answer here is justice has come to the earth. They're not asking that question anymore because they now see God's justice. And instead of asking that question, they're now singing hallelujah. Well, I've left the hardest part till last. Revelation chapter 20. This is one of those passages that causes a little bit of discussion amongst Christians. What's this whole thousand years thing about? Now let me quickly run through the details that we've got in chapter 20. 
We're told that Satan is bound and that he is thrown into the abyss and he's there for a thousand years, uh, that the dead are raised to rule with Christ, that Satan is released for a short time. Uh, he gathers the nations to fight against God one last time, but he's soundly defeated. He's thrown into the lake of fire and then the final judgment takes place. All those whose names are not written in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I suppose the question that we kind of have to ask is, when is or was Satan defeated? Now, let me show you a couple of Bible passages and let's try and see how Jesus views Satan's demise. Um, this is what, uh, we'll get there sometime. There it is. In John's Gospel, this is what Jesus says. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. See, Jesus saw that his death on the cross was the point at which Satan was defeated. Paul says much the same thing in Colossians. He says this, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus says, or Paul says, that the cross is where the victory is won. The cross is where Satan is defeated. In John's Gospel, Jesus talks about Satan being bound. The Pharisees are accusing Jesus of actually being an agent of Satan, that he's working for Satan. And Jesus says, well, that's just plainly ridiculous. How could I possibly be working for him when I'm working against him? But he goes on to say this. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob the house. Jesus says that he's bound the strong man, tied him up, and now he's plundering his house. How does that happen? How is Satan's house plundered? Well, Satan's house is plundered when people come to faith in Jesus, when they're no longer part of Satan's kingdom. They're plundered when they belong to Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus is talking with, uh, he sent 72 disciples out to preach the message of the kingdom. And they come back and they report to Jesus what's happened and this is what they say. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That is because of the preaching of the gospel. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, none of that means that we now live in a Satan-free world. You only need to turn the news on at night to know that sin is still here. Satan is still at work in this world. But it does mean that he's a beaten foe that we have nothing to fear from him. Satan is bound and his house is being plundered. People often get preoccupied with the idea that Satan's going to be released for a very short time. But it doesn't amount to much. Can you turn to Revelation chapter 20? Find verse number 7. Satan gets released from this abyss where he's been bound. He gathers an army and it's looking pretty serious. 
Because he's gathered an army of people from all around the world and they're going to make their final stand against God. They come and they surround the city of God's people and it's looking like it could be dangerous. But then verse number 9, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It's over. Like that. I mean, there's no battle that takes place. God's people don't even have to get up out, out from the dining table. They're still rejoicing. They're still singing hallelujah. Because fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's almost a repeat of the battle that takes place back in chapter 19, verse 17, uh, the battle between the, the false prophet and the beast when, when he does battle with Jesus. Before the battle's even started in chapter 19, the angels are summoning the vultures and other birds of prey to come and get ready because there's going to be a nasty little battle take place and a whole lot of people for you to feast on. And the battle's over without a shot being fired. This is no contest. Things look like they're shaping up to be serious, but they're not. Because God's got it all under control. It's a futile thing to think that you can stand up against the God who created this world. It's a futile thing to think that you can stand up against Jesus, whom God has made king of all. Can I get you to turn back to chapter 18 and verse number 4? Because I think these are the words that are for us in this passage. Before the destruction of Babylon, there's a voice from heaven. And look at what it's calling out. Chapter 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins so that you will not receive any of her plagues. There's a call for God's people to distance themselves from Babylon. Don't get seduced by Babylon. Don't get seduced because Babylon's destined for destruction. Don't trust in those things that won't be here when Jesus comes again. Don't trust in those things that won't stand on that last day. And also, we should be keeping ourselves pure. As people who are waiting for Jesus to come, we need to live lives that reflect that we're his people. To use the imagery of the passage, we're waiting for a wedding to take place. Now's not the time for committing adultery. It's often surprising how you can you can easily see the problems that other people have but not see the problems that you yourself deal with. A few years ago we had the chance to visit some friends in Thailand. Uh, they're working with a church there. As you may know, Bangkok has has a reputation of being um, you know, one of the sex capitals of the world. And we sat in this Thai church and listened to the Thai preacher talking about the importance of, of Christians being morally upright people. And then he went on to tell us about the evil cities that exist in our world and the terrible things that take place in those cities. And he pointed to cities like London and Paris and New York and how 
all of the evils that are there. It didn't dawn on him to mention Bangkok, strangely enough. But my only thought when I heard him say that was, wow, I wonder what my blind spots are. I wonder where the areas are that I see the, other, the things that other people that are doing that are wrong. But what about me? What are the things that I'm not noticing in myself? Babylon's always going to be there for us in this life, offering pleasure and security and hope and prosperity and comfort and so much more. But we need to remember where our security and our hope is found. And it's found in Jesus and the kingdom that he will one day establish. Revelation is often seen as a book that's supposed to terrify us, fill us with fear about what the future of our world will be. But that's not why John's shown these visions. And that's not what the book's supposed to do. This book is supposed to encourage us as Christians, comfort us as Christians, remind us that we live in a world where there are dangers, but our God is the one who rules over all. And remind us that Satan has been defeated, that Jesus has defeated sin and Satan and death through his death on the cross. And while we wait for him to come again, while we wait for that final judgment to take place, we ought to be committed to living faithful lives 